Support for this show is brought to you by Instill. Our friends at Instill really understand what it means to build and manage relationships in a holistic and human-first way. The platform's advanced UX design and real-time analytics, smooth donor management to make it easy for you to connect every supporter to the impact of your work. To learn more, head on over to www.instill.io backslash Mallory. And it's time that this sector got taken credibly. We have to make that happen. So we professionalize the norms. We put our foot down firmly, not aggressively, not meanly, but firmly. And we claim our voice, our rights, our dignity. That has to happen. We do it for ourselves. We do it for our girls. We do it for the people around us. Welcome back to episode 35, part two of What the Fundraising. I'm your host, Mallory Erickson, and this podcast is for impact leaders and change makers who are looking to fundamentally change the way they lead and fundraise. Today's episode, or really two-part series, is quite heavy. We're going to be talking about sexual harassment and fundraising. There is explicit content and potentially triggering storytelling, so I want to make sure you listen to today's show in the right place mentally, physically, and emotionally. For this episode, I have the incredible honor of interviewing Dr. Anne Olivarius, who is recognized around the world for her pioneering work in representing victims of sexual violence, sexual harassment, and discrimination. Her firms in the US and UK have achieved landmark settlements for survivors of abuse and successfully coordinated international efforts to bring perpetrators to justice. In part two, we are diving into how to create organizational support for your fundraisers and how to ensure your donors understand your guidelines and process for protecting fundraisers from sexual harassment. Dr. Olivarius explains what a non-disclosure agreement is and how it is a tool of oppression. We also talk about how the corporate sector has changed and the progress we have seen in terms of accountability and the protection of women. We also talk about dealing with legacy issues in organizations, and even Dr. Olivarius, who has done a lifetime of incredible work, talks about her own evolution from thinking that some things were just the way things are to the advocacy and activism she leads today. So much of this subject is deeply personal. And while Dr. Olivarius gives some clear advice around how organizations in this sector can best protect fundraisers, I wanna make sure that everyone listening to this Here's the advice with open ears, a compassionate heart, and grace for your own past. As someone who didn't file a police report when I maybe quote unquote should have, I know that sometimes when we hear what we believe to be the right way to handle these sensitive situations, we can beat ourselves up about our own past. That's not the point of this. The point is to acknowledge this issue, learn together, to understand what collective action looks like in this scenario, to learn how to create safer environments for our fundraisers, and to create an opening to perhaps process our own trauma through different lanes of support, because the legal route isn't always what Dr. Olivarius recommends, as you'll hear. If you want to make sure you start at the beginning and want to hear more background on Dr. Anne Olivarius and her leadership, you might want to jump back and start at part one. But for the rest of you, let's dive in and continue the conversation. 
as we think about this systemic issue in the nonprofit sector, there are these, there are multiple prongs. One is to remove some of these old school dynamics that leads to a lot of sexual harassment. I want to talk about the sexual harassment specifically in terms of your recommendations for how organizations support their fundraisers around this. One of the things that I've heard, and honestly, one of the reasons I felt the most nervous even to do this episode, is that it could possibly mean that a lot of fundraisers go report things to their organizations and in the reporting process are treated in ways that cause further trauma, which is something I've experienced personally myself. But what are some of the things you think about when you think about the structures that need to be set up to allow for safe reporting and accountability in those pieces? I don't think there's any difference here than with corporations who we advise all the time, government bodies. I mean, every group where men are in control are going to have these problems. We have to set up reporting structures and reports have to be put in under safeguarding mechanisms that the people who report are not going to be abused or threatened or bullied. We have to make sure that that's done properly and according to the law. It's actually a violation of law for a fundraiser to be sexually harassed. There's no question about that. So it's important that it gets documented in a way that's appropriate and timely. So if it's a small organization, let's just like imagine it's an organization with just an executive director, a board of directors, what would be your recommendation in terms of how the executive director files that, seeks support around that? And then I'm curious, at what point does filing a suit come in? Okay, so let's take activism. We're in California. It's a lot of press right now on this case of activism, mm -hmm. where they make, of course, violent games. So the people developing those games, largely men, may have an attitude in their personal lives that would represent what they do in their professional lives, which mm -hmm. is to be very unkind towards women. You have this business. There was a lawsuit filed a couple of months ago. And now we hear that Bobby Kotick, who is the CEO, the president of activism, had a palpable claim of rape twice by a man at activism, and he settled it, paid the woman off, had her sign a non-disclosure agreement, and never informed the board of directors. Now, that's clearly, in law, a violation of his job. Now, when this became public this past week, the board of directors, they're keeping Bobby Kotick in place. The board wasn't informed. So you have to wonder, why wasn't the board informed? Or perhaps was the board informed, but they're just not reporting it. What's going on? It's a huge legal issue. It's a huge problem for activism. The board has not done its job properly, clearly. Bobby Kotick hasn't done his job properly. And they're going to pay for that in terms of law, publicity, and money eventually. Mm -hmm. Now, assuming that these are the facts as has been portrayed, I'm assuming mm -hmm. that what's been told us is true. If not, then I have to change that. But that's what's been reported. So what's the difference between a donor who is a board of directors issue and analyze it, and you put the same situation? They you know, put their hand on the girl's back or whatever is the situation. They're at fault. That's a violation of law. Mm -hmm. No matter how you slice it, regardless of the jurisdiction, you know, now how it was done, under what circumstance, but there's a clear intent when you're with people, 
you get in the air a sense of, is this a sexual piece to this or not? It's often denied by the other person, but you know it's there. Mm -hmm. And until you start to document it, you may have to document it by a number of different people a number of times until there's clarity. And if there is clarity and you do have a sexual harasser and abuser, then of course, this can be resolved by actually an act in law. And that's what the laws are there to protect people so they can do their jobs. Why shouldn't fundraisers be able to do their jobs? They're not asking for money. They're developing a system where they can achieve a goal, the donors can achieve a goal, and those goals hopefully advance society. I think we need to have a completely different mindset as to the professionalism of this kind of work. Mm. So what would you suggest for organizations that have legacy issues like this and have worked perhaps have deep relationships with philanthropists that are known perpetrators. And it's something that has not been addressed for 10, 20 years and fundraisers keep coming and going out of the organization. How do we start? All of us, as life goes on, we hope we all grow. I mean, in my own career, even though here I was an advocate for and put together the concept of date rape and then sexual harassment and made that a, a part of law of the United States. Early on when I was at Goldman Sachs, I was assigned to take care of Bill Gates, who was a scrawny, smelly man with ripped shirts and perspiring, and to prepare him for the roadshow, to talk about money, to talk about how he would handle himself to get investors for his first initial public offering. At the time, he didn't behave well, and he was too handsy and too forward. But again, I was young. I In my 20s, I thought perhaps this is how this thing goes. And I didn't sleep with him, and I didn't do anything further with him. But I knew that I was a professional, and I wanted to be taken seriously. And there were only two women in the mergers and acquisitions department at Goldman Sachs at the time, and I was the only mother. And I was already looked upon a bit askew because what is she doing here? I would go off literally on lunch breaks and I'd be breastfeeding my child and then I'd come back to work. A lot of men would be out with secretaries and they'd go take a hotel room and they'd put it on the expense account. And that was what was happening in the mergers and acquisitions department at Goldman Sachs when I was there. Later on, uh, as I became more professionally known, Bill Clinton approached me for advice on Monica Lewinsky. He didn't take my advice, but that's okay. He made his choice, and, and now we have that legacy. And certainly, he was a good president in so many ways, but certainly his sexual behavior has really ruined his regular legacy. The great man that he could have been has been essentially destroyed, in my opinion. Okay, so years later, I get a call from Harvey Weinstein, and he wants to hire me. And I tell him, why? And he says, there are some allegations, some girls, you know, some of these bitches, and he's very unkind with his language. He goes even stronger with his language. And I say, thank you. Don't give me any details. And I've learned that I will not take on those assignments. Just the opposite. I'll work against him. So I think as we all grow and find our voices, we find that it's much easier to have a life where you support things you really support. And I think as the Me Too movement has grown, as women have grown in this space, as the trans movement has happened in making us rethink gender roles again, I think when it comes to fundraising, as with every other sector of society, women finding a voice, using their voice to good ends. And if they've got a person like Harvey Weinstein, Bill Gates, Bill Clinton that they're working for, then you've got to say, nope, doesn't work for me. I'm going to register that. And you do it with dignity and aplomb and care and respect and always carefully. And you 
don't bring ever, would never consider a false claim, of course, but you document the record and trust that the system will work. Trust that your employer will take care of that, do the right thing. If not, you go to the law. And if not, you go to the press. There are ways to handle things and you can always go online and speak your truth. Hmm. Wow. I'm thinking about how many cases are brought when the numbers amass to a certain level, right? Like Larry Nasser and Harvey Weinstein. And I'm curious, is there a tipping point? I mean, how many women coming together makes women feel safe to take a legal route? And then I know other women join once there's more public momentum around something. But have you noticed in your career any pattern around that? You know, surely the more women who make an identical complaint against the same perp, well, that's going to get stronger and stronger. Now, we know that with Bill Cosby, of course, Mm -hmm. it took an awful lot of women before that was taken seriously, even though he gave a deposition admitting to the fact that he drugged women and raped women. And that still took a long time to Mm -hmm. come up to him. He's out on a technicality, not because he's innocent, but because he's got a technicality. The fact is that women themselves are not treated with a lot of respect in many sectors. And of course, fundraisers, because they don't get paid a whole lot of money. It's like church workers, volunteers, all these people, they're not taken credibly. And it's time that this sector got taken credibly. We have to make that happen. So we professionalize the norms. We put our foot down firmly, not aggressively, not meanly, but firmly. And we claim our voice, our rights, our dignity. That has to happen. We do it for ourselves. We do it for our girls. We do it for the people around us. I want to just double click on the pay piece because that's come up a few times around the role that paying fundraisers more would have systematically on this issue. Will you talk to me a little bit more about that? Well, there was a very famous economist many years ago who said what's not you know, known, it's what's not, if it's not quantified, if it's not a numerical value put on something, then it has no value, mm-hmm. essentially. And women's work, that's why housework, who, who values housework? Sure, if you're the woman who comes in and works four hours a day in your house three times a week, there's a set rate for that, and that's what value you put on. But what about the woman who says, I'm going to stay there and raise my family and bring love into the lives of those around me and support my husband. That's a whole issue still. And that's still because women aren't educated in a way to go out there and have to take care of themselves. We're still told we want to be protected. So all these things are happening Mm. in society. And you go back to whatever sector in the corporate world where women are working, but particularly in the lower paid professions, the waitresses, the nurses, the fundraisers, women who are not paid a lot, We have to get them paid more because the value to society of teachers, of nurses, of certainly fundraisers is very high. It makes a real difference if they do their job well. And as they become more powerful, certainly their voices are going to be listened to. And of course, hopefully sexual harassment will be addressed in a way that will be effective because they'll have voices that will be listened to. I'm curious about the role that NDAs play in maintaining power and making women feel more isolated when they have had an experience of sexual harassment. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Yeah, that's a tool in our profession, non-disclosure agreements. And so that's an NDA is when a uh, woman 
potentially has been raped, and she agrees to accept a sum of money, and then in return, she gives silence. And this has been the way the world has worked until now. California is one jurisdiction where now in certain areas of employment law, you can no longer sign an NDA. Well, that's really positive. I don't understand how it has been, and is it such an example of male privilege, because these are men who get the NDAs signed by women in almost all cases minus a few. So this is a gender issue. How can it be that because a man has so badly behaved himself, he gets to say, here, for X amount of money, this never happened. The woman can never speak about it. She loses her right to that. If you had been in a car crash, something terrible happened to you. Say even it was unintentional. You still get to tell your story. You don't Mm. sign an NDA for how much money you got. That's not allowed. If something else happened to you, you were in fraud, any kind of criminal act, you were, I stole your money or something, I, you don't get an NDA. You could ask for it, but that's not the standard. But with sex things, it's considered, well, we just should have the victims go silent because it allows the men to go out there and do it again and again and again without having that be known. Mm-hmm. So an NDA is a vile tool. It's certainly a tool of women's oppression, without a doubt. I mean, a lot of men will say, well, we're not going to pay any money unless you know she signs this. Okay, that's the mentality. Mm-hmm. But the fact is that they've done harm. They need to settle up on that harm, and they need to pay her because money is the currency of our justice system. Mm-hmm. So they pay her a sum of money. Why she should have to give away her voice and her ability to narrate her story, to tell the story of her life in her way, makes no sense to me. And I think people are catching on to that. And hopefully soon, that will now become a law across the country. Mm. Is it ever policy or could it be adopted in nonprofit policy that NDAs are not allowed? Absolutely. Any organization could say we don't sign NDAs. And they should. I mean, certainly that would be really uplifting for a fundraising organization to say, if anything happens, and these, this is our protocol, our terms of business when you approach a donor to say, we do not sign NDAs. You put that down in your contract with them, whatever mm-hmm. material, your brochure, whatever you're sending them, whatever you're going to say, put that right in there. You're giving the message across right away to a donor, a potential abuser, that this is not going to give you the privacy that you want mm-hmm. if you're found guilty of this. So don't do it. It's a wonderful tool. And certainly any enlightened person running an organization should consider this. Are there any other tools like that that you would recommend or sort of policy or procedural components that you would say, okay, in order to keep your fundraisers safe and heard, here are some critical components? Okay, so you get into a whole issue about publicity, but certainly one of the issues could be that you could say, not only do we not agree to give an NDA, but we do also say affirmatively that we're going to publish the wrongdoing. So if you were to publish it along the donor network, Mm. wow, that would be extraordinary. And if everybody agreed to do that together, Mm. that would change the whole aura. People would think really differently. People working for fundraising organizations would know that they're being protected. Mm. Somebody really cares about them. And they're going to be treated with dignity if something happens. Mm. So those would be terrific things to do. Wow. There's so much here around 
the money and power, you know, at the very beginning of this conversation, we were talking about the different roles that money plays. And I've been thinking about the NDA and the money, severance and the money, not paying fundraisers well, but then the severance packages that come with those NDAs oftentimes to retain the top donors of the institutions and how critical it is to disrupt all of those components if the organization is actually going to do the work that it's set out to do. I mean, I'm a really avid proponent that the nonprofit sector is not here to be an employer. We're here to solve problems. And not all money is created equal to solve those problems. And if we're taking money that is further perpetuating injustice, inequity, oppression, harm, then what is the point of all of it? I, exactly. I don't know. But I would say that so much oftentimes inside the sector is driven by fear and scarcity and with a belief that it's rooted in doing good and not that that isn't the intention behind it, but the sort of practical application of that is this like survival mentality and scarcity that puts survival above everything else. Yes, exactly. So well said. What's an example of a sector that you feel like has really been able to change when it comes to sexual harassment, protecting women, believing women? What's a North Star to look at? This may seem silly, but I think corporate America has changed. Mm. I think now corporations are really sensitive to things. I mean, certainly they're not paying people equally for the work done. There are lots of issues still, and many still are forcing NDAs to be signed. But they are aware of things. They understand they have legal liability, and they understand that it's in their interest not to support a sexual harasser. They understand that. So once you separate interest, I mean, it's like, you know, in the universities these days, if I was setting out a plan for Title IX, I would make sure that, you know, we now have a university community across the United States where there's been so much more added in terms of administration. We have layers and layers of administrators now. They could pay pretty damn good salaries. So, all right, so we have this layer. I would make sure that if you've done that, that for violations of Title IX, that the administrators responsible for overseeing this area are going to have to pay some money themselves. Mm. They have personal liability. University sector is not changing unless you change some laws about making them economically responsible. But corporations, actually, they understand. Mm. It's not a good thing to have a guy who sexually harasses that you keep him on staff or a woman who sexually harasses mm. keep her on staff. So I think corporate America has essentially gotten the idea. Now, as Activision Showing us that? No. I mean, we have to bring lawsuits to make sure Silicon Valley is rampant with all sorts of problems. And okay, sure. We have a lot of work to do. Yeah. But maybe that's the best place to do it through the corporate world because mm -hmm. it does touch all the other worlds. Yeah. I'm curious what you think about the role that the law plays or these cases play in changing a specific person's behavior, or perhaps not even the person in the case, but other individuals. For example, if a case came out, a very public case around a donor, a philanthropist, which I don't think we have had 
from the position of a fundraiser and a donor, right? That has yet to be on the scene. So if something like that were to come to light and perhaps there are multiple accusers and no matter what the verdict is, do you think the law plays a role in changing the behavior of other philanthropists? Or do you think those those other philanthropists are just more careful about their discretion? Sure. I mean, as soon as this has been exposed, any person's going to say, I've got risk here. I've got exposure. Mm-hmm. And you do change your behavior. There's no doubt about it. We mm-hmm. see it every day. We see it at the jokes made around offices. Even our own office, where we're dealing with really hard, traumatic issues all the time. And, you know, even we've got to be pretty careful how we joke just to try and make life possible because your heart breaks most days of the week for the people come in the door. It just, it changes the culture, the atmosphere, the humor, how you approach things. You know you have exposure, so you've got to be careful. One of the things that you're challenging me to think about is if an organization were to expose one of their major donors, right, who likely has an outsized impact on the organization, they could be rallied around in order to support the organization to meet their operating budget, even if they were to have a shortfall because of the loss of a donor. But regardless of what happened to that amount of money, I think the other thing that you're you're bringing up with the corporate example is the risk to organizations of doing nothing, having these issues exposed, and losing the support of all of those other partners in order to retain the power and privilege of that donor. Yeah, yeah. You lose your talent in the fundraising sector. Who is going to want to stay there and become a part of something like that once it's clear what's going on? How many people would accept the indignity? It's mortifying to be someone on the receiving end of discrimination, of sexual harassment. Who would want to do that? And certainly talented professionals are not going to find that acceptable. So you're going to lose your best and brightest and your organization will decrease in its own ability. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I've heard that I feel particularly sensitive to is that the black and brown leaders inside the nonprofit sector that experience abuse in so many different ways inside the sector. Some of the feedback I've heard is that sexual harassment feels small compared to the level of abuse and discrimination that many of them are exposed to on a daily basis, the harm that's caused by women and men in the sector, donors, other staff members. And so trying to figure out the role that sexual harassment plays as one piece of a really complicated puzzle of abuse. And I'm curious, I know your work expands beyond sexual harassment. How do you think about those different compartments and their relationship to each other? We see a lot of brown, Asian, Black women who come to us in the charitable sector who complain bitterly about what's happening to them. You could take their perspective where they say the white women are not speaking up. Mm. They're leaving the hard work to us. Mm. And they feel, many of them, that the bullying, the hostility, the toxicity in organizations towards them is far worse than towards the white women. Mm. And so why should they have to fight the battles of the white women? Mm. So it's a two-way street. Now, how does that come out? It depends on the organization, what the issue is. 
but certainly it's not just a white woman's issue of sexual harassment. Mm. And if it's happening to the white women, it's certainly happening to the brown, black, Asian. There's no possibility that it's not. Yeah, I think you're highlighting a really important point, which is that the burden of coming forward, the burden of educating staff, of talking to the board often falls on Black, Brown, and Asian staff members because the white women in their proximity to power are more silent. And so I think it is about using the power that we do have to elevate all of the issues that surround sexual harassment and abuse and trauma and this is one conversation in the midst of a lot. All right. So what would you say if someone's listening to this and they're like, okay, I have a complaint that I want to file, but I'm really scared. I can imagine that a lot of the people who come forward to you are really scared to do so. And I think sometimes there's this assumption made that when people say hard things, they feel totally confident saying hard things. And so I'm curious, what would you say to someone about doing that hard thing or acting scared? Well, I can tell you what we do at least, which is a formula that's been really successful. We get people who call us, men and women, and say, all right, this thing happened to me. And we sit and listen. We don't charge for that introductory meeting. We say, fine, just talk to us. We have two people on the call. We listen and we say, all right, do you have any evidence of that? Any way to prove what you've just told us? Which is generally a very different way of looking at life because you're experiencing something yourself. Now I'm saying to you, okay, Mallory, that's okay, all well and good. I believe you, but how am I going to prove your case? Mm. And it makes you have to think out of the box in a very different way. Mm. And what you find very quickly, you say, well, you know, Mary, Joe, Henry, and Sam will all testify for me. Then we say, all right. May we call these people? Mm. We call these people. And well, maybe one will do something positive, but not everybody. Mm. So we spend a little bit of time up front saying what kind of evidence and what kind of damages can the person actually pay anything? So you don't want to get involved in a four-year lawsuit and mm. have $2,000 mm -hmm. at the end. Mm -hmm. So we have these practical conversations, which anchors people's fear mm. into real life. Does it make sense for them to take it forward? And we sometimes say, Maybe a therapist would be your best course, mm. or a best friend, or you write something on a blog, or you file a complaint, and we talk about the potential downsides of doing that, depending on what industry, where they are, who they'd be mm. complaining against, what damages they could potentially get, and how will they win their case? Will they actually win the case? And we're very cautious about that. So by the time they make the decision whether to go forward or not, and we make that decision, and sometimes we take cases on contingency, mm. and we always review all that stuff first. Because a contingency case, we ask people to pay expenses, but we're taking the risk. Mm. And so we want to make sure we get it right. And so our interests are aligned totally with the person's interests. Mm. So we're really cautious. So I'd say find a legal house that operates like we operate, that will actually treat you with respect, talk to you, and give you some sense of where you could go with this, what you could do. And sometimes we say, we can't help you. And that's very tough. Sometimes people get really angry at us because we can't help them. But that's... Our job is not to cause more harm. It's to do no harm and to try to help. So this is a very different question, but what makes you so courageous? Hmm. Well, I don't look at myself as being courageous. Although in fairness, I, I do cross the street for a good fight. It's true. I think coming from very little in life, there was no money to protect or to use to protect. I had nothing. 
I had a lot of love with my four sisters and I feel that love really intensely and wanted to protect them. And coming of age, seeing the world as it is for women, and it is not an acceptable world across all sectors. It just isn't there at all. I talked earlier about it being the root oppression. I think it is the root oppression in the world. Mm. It pains me that the opportunities for women are still necessary because we're unequal all over the place. I watched a television show. I you know, saw a Meryl Streep movie on the British Airways flight over here, and I hadn't seen it in 20 years, and it was so sexist, I wanted to cry. And I used to think, oh, what a wonderful film. Everywhere you look. And for those of us who really want to have a better world, who really hope that we can aspire to have quality lives and that people can bring their best forward and be elevated, it's a meritocracy. There's no meritocracy yet. Mm -hmm. So I really think the best I can do is to try and just help everybody else to get to a better place, whatever that looks like. I mean, everybody's definition of better is different. But if people don't speak up, silence lets a lot of bad things happen. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I find it's important to be able to speak up, not in a call out sort of, I'm going to beat you up and I hate you. No, no, no. But in a kind and classy way, you've got to call out the experiences that you have them. And they can run the gamut from seeing a woman at Parable Beach yesterday who left nothing to the imagination, and she seemed to be so pleased with herself. And I thought, wow, what a brainwashing job we've done to her. And I felt so sorry for her. And she looked so proud of herself, and my heart broke for her. But to the woman who comes in and says she's been raped repeatedly by a number of people in the military, military rape is constant, and we're, we're not doing anything really about that yet, and even talking about it. This is not just an easy world. Things are really sad. And because women get brought up and they have this notion in our culture that they should be happy as wives and mothers, I love being a wife. I love being a mother. But I love as much having a career and trying to make a difference and being a full participant in life. And I wish that everybody else has the choice. It's about choice. Mm -hmm. If you decide to be a father and raise children, bless those are choices, but we don't have choices. And if you make the choice to be a wife and mother and to come back to the workforce later, it's really tough. You'll get paid less. You will never get that kind of respect that you would perhaps hope to have at one point. So I, I think we have to find our voices. And you doing podcasts like this and speaking about hard issues in ways that are difficult that people don't want to hear sometimes, but it's the acknowledgement that the world is not equal. And if we just let it continue, your daughter's going to grow up in a very unequal world. My kids, the same. I want to change that. I want to make it a chance for them. I had that chance when I went to Yale and got a Rhodes Scholarship, and I had a shot at life. I realize now that it was still a very sexist world, but I want to make sure others have that shot. I need to pay it forward, and if that means speaking up and then using courage, then fine. That's important to do. How do you manage the influx of traumatic stories and hardship. And I know our nonprofit leaders deal with this every day, just how heavy it can all feel and especially feeling so rooted in impact and making the world a better place. How do you manage the experience for yourself of just taking it one bite at a time? I thought a long time ago that I'd heard all the sad stories. What do they say? There's like seven stories in the world and they just get written and rewritten and great novelists write these stories. I thought I'd heard almost 
all the saddest things that could possibly be. But in my legal practice, I can't say a month passes when I don't hear an even worse story or another story that I think, no, no, this cannot be. How could this have happened? How could this be happening? What can we do for this person? It happens all the time. It's, it's constant. And I think you, I try to hire people who can bear that kind of stress. Mm-hmm. We have excellent therapists that our people will pay for therapy if anybody wants therapy. Mm-hmm. Most of the women and some, some of the men who've worked with us have been raped. They've had that experience themselves. We never ask about it. We don't, it's not important in the hiring process, but you can tell about how they approach people that there's a personal piece that's involved and people's hearts go out to people. We hire best and brightest we can find because we need the intellect because we have to win these really hard court cases. And we look also that in terms of not just intellect, but soul and heart. And then if any kind of support services, we provide them or they get them themselves privately, discreetly. Thank you. I could talk to you forever, but would you tell folks where they can learn more about your work and find you and follow along? And then I invite everyone to highlight a nonprofit that is really meaningful to them for listeners to go check out and give if they can. So those are our final two wrap-up questions. Well, you can find us at McAllister Olivarius. We have a website. It's M-C-A-L-L-I-S-T-E-R, Olivarius, O-L-I-V-A-R-I-U-S. Or you can find me as Anne Olivarius, O-L-I-V-A-R-I-U-S. If you put that into Google, a lot will come up and you'll find us pretty quickly on that. And in terms of our own charity, well, we put our money into cases and to trying to help the most impoverished people come forward. So I think people, if they can find people who need legal services, need help, that helps people find their voice. And it's really hard in this country. If you don't have money, you really don't get justice. Unless you get a firm like us, we'll take it on contingency. And there's not a lot of us. Mm. There aren't as enough of us as we need. And legal aid really doesn't exist. So if you can find a good organization or some group that would give money to people to litigate their rights, you'd be changing the world and really making a person's life infinitely better. Give them hope. You could really maybe change outcomes. It would make a true difference. Thank you for that. And thank you for this entire conversation and joining me today and getting to meet you in person. It's such an honor. I feel the same towards you. Thank you very much. Just like I said at the end of part one, I don't know what you're feeling right now. And my guess is there's a huge range of emotions and experiences hearing the content in this series. Wherever you're at, it's okay. Again, you might not even agree with everything presented, but this show is about bringing to light important issues that need to be discussed. And I couldn't have asked for a more relevant and brilliant thought leader and activist than Dr. Anne Olivarius. There was a lot of wisdom shared in this episode, but I want to highlight a few of my biggest takeaways. Number one, we need to set up reporting structures. We need to set a safeguarding mechanism for people to appropriately, safely, and timely report any incidents of sexual harassment. Two, NDAs are a tool of oppression. We shouldn't be using them, and we should be sharing with our donors that our organization does not use NDAs. This gets the message across that the organization will not give any privacy to potential abuse. Three, pattern recognition is helpful. You might not think that what happened to you is a huge deal, 
But as we heard, pattern recognition is really important. And that's why documenting incidents with your organization can be critical in protecting others inside your organization. And then four, going the legal route is not your only option. I loved the way that Dr. Olivarius talked about her intake process and how honest her firm is with victims in terms of what they can expect when filing. A legal route is not the only option. And so whether or not you even decide to come publicly forward, you can still support your own healing through therapy and other support avenues. Okay, I know this is a lot to process for me too. So head on over to MalloryErickson.com backslash podcast if you want to get access to all of the show notes, as well as a number of other related resources about sexual harassment and fundraising. You'll also find more information there about Dr. Olivarius and how to connect with her. Thank you, as always, for spending this time with us today. I am so grateful for all of my listeners and the good hard work you're doing to make our world a better place. And if you want to connect between episodes, stop by and say hello on Instagram under what the fundraising underscore. Thank you again for your time listening to this important content. I hope to see you next week.